Sometimes I feel like we live in a world of smoke and mirrors where nothing is as it seems, that there is very little that is real. We know that man-made jewels are so real, sometimes a jeweler has difficulty telling them from the real thing. I know Linda can't tell the difference. (laughs) And some of you men have told me that your wife can't either. So I'm just teasing about that. I'm sure whatever he has given you is real, but it is difficult to tell. We have heard the stories about expensive art that turned out to be fake. Well, in the religious world, there is also the true and the false. There is that that is true and that that is false. Not everything is real. In fact, if I were to say today what I believe to be the most popular gospel, I would say that it is the gospel of political correctness. And so what we do within that is to compromise or sacrifice truth in order to be acceptable. And so we have false prophets then who preach a false gospel telling us that all religions are equally valid, are equally good. And that's what Peter is dealing with in his second letter, and that's what we're studying through is the second letter of Simon Peter. Now, when we came to Second Peter chapter 1 in the first nine verses of that chapter, he describes what is a true Christian. He says, these things should characterize your lives. And then he lists those things that say we have truly been born again, that we are the real thing. In chapter number 2, in the first nine verses, he describes those that are not real, those that are false. And that's what we are looking at today. So take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 1 through 9. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds." Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. You'll notice in verse number 1, Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. False prophets, false teachers have always been with us, and they are with us today. 
So Simon Peter then is giving to us a description of these false prophets, that that is not real. He says, first of all, that they are deceptive in verse number 3. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. The word false that is used there is the Greek word plastos. It is the word from which we get our word plastic. He is saying that their words are pliable. Their words are twistable. And that is the reason that it is so difficult for us sometimes to understand what a false teacher is actually teaching. Because they twist their words. Their words are pliable. And so it's almost like nailing jello to a wall. It is difficult for us to understand the teaching of the false prophet. But he says they bring into the church destructive heresies. Look at verse 1. The false prophets also arouse, arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, the word heresy in its original uh, context was a good word. It literally meant to choose. That's all that it meant. It meant to choose. In time, it had a negative connotation, and here's the reason why. When Jesus came to this world, then truth came into the world. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when Jesus came, then there was truth. So now man is in a position that he must make a decision between that that is true and that that is false. And one commentator wrote, a heretic then became a man who believed what he wished to believe, instead of accepting the truth of God, which he ought to believe. Now, why is it that someone would embrace and teach a false doctrine? Why would someone deliberately teach doctrine that is not true? And Peter tells us, he says that there are some who do it because they are more interested in popularity than they are in truth. Folks, there are some people who preach and teach a false religion because they want to be accepted by the people. Now, Jeremiah ran into that. You recall that when the Lord called Jeremiah to be a prophet to the people of Israel, his message was not a something good is going to happen to you. His message was a rather difficult message. And then the Bible says in Jeremiah 16, 13, uh, 6, verses 13 and 14, And from the prophet even to the priest, now he's speaking of the false prophets there, From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. And they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. In other words, the prophets and the priests during Jeremiah's time wanted to be popular with the people, and so they preached a message that was not true. They were preaching peace when the Bible says there was going to be no peace. Oh, don't listen to Jeremiah. He'll get you on a guilt trip. Don't listen to Jeremiah. He's too harsh. Don't listen to Jeremiah. He's just an old fundamental preacher. You don't want to listen to him. Everything is going to be all right. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. There are some people who preach a false gospel because they preach what the people want to hear. 
The Scripture says in the New Testament, those having itching ears. In other words, they tickle the ears of the people because they want to be accepted by the people. There are some who are motivated by personal gain. Micah chapter 3, verse number 11, Here priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Paul wrote in Titus chapter 1, verse number 11, Teaching things they ought not teach for the sake of sordid gain. So what the Bible tells us is that some people propagate a false message. They are false prophets because they want to be popular with the people. Well, because it is profitable for them. So he says they bring in destructive heresies and they secretly introduce them. Now look again at verse number one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. The word secretly is three Greek words. Para, which means alongside. So they will bring their false doctrine and lay it alongside the truth. You see, if you are going to be effective in propagating a false doctrine, there has to be some truth in it. So they bring in then the false doctrine and lay it alongside the truth, para, and then ice, E-I-S. And that word means in two. So they bring the false doctrine then into the church. And the third word is ago, which means to lead. So what he is saying here is that the false prophet comes into the church, lays the false doctrine alongside the truth, that they might lead people from the truth. Perfect example is the story of Adam and Eve. I don't know if you've ever looked at the temptation of Adam and Eve, and I've always been fascinated by it. How was Satan so effective in getting them to rebel against the Lord? And he began, interestingly enough, by questioning the Word of God. Now, that's where the temptation begins. Putting a question mark where God has put a period. And so the Bible says in Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said? Question mark. You see, what the woman said to the serpent was that God has told us we are not to eat of this forbidden fruit. Satan came on the scene and asked the question, Did God really say that? Is that what he meant? Now, what he was doing was to raise a question concerning the authenticity of the Word of God. There's a question now. Now, then, after the question, once the question is there, the next step is denial. You see, we begin by questioning the Word of God, and then we deny the Word of God. So in Genesis 3, 4, And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. Now then, he's saying, God didn't tell you the truth. That is a lie. That, that is not something that, that is true. You will not die. And then, after denial, then we replace the truth with a lie. In Genesis 3, 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the temptation then of Adam and Eve was to question the Word of God, Deny the Word of God, and then substitute a lie for the truth. And that is what a false prophet does. 
Someone who teaches a false doctrine, a false religion, questions the truth, denies the truth, and substitutes a lie. And then deception leads to denial. So Peter says they deceive us. And deception leads to denial. Now, a false teacher will present themselves normally. See if this is not true in your understanding. But a false teacher normally will present themselves as someone who has a new understanding of spirituality or a deeper understanding of spirituality. You know, I mean, it doesn't make any difference what the church has believed through the ages. It doesn't make any difference what the scholars have taught. All of a sudden, this teacher comes in and they have a new understanding or a deeper understanding. That's Oprah. She has a new or a deeper understanding of spirituality. That, that's true with, with many, or I, I think probably all, false prophets. They have a new or deeper understanding, and their goal is to deny the place of Jesus. Their goal is to deny the deity of Jesus. That's what the Da Vinci Code was all about. A few years ago, when that was at, it was to deny the deity of Jesus. And there are those who want to tell us that Jesus was a teacher, that he was a prophet, that he was a good man, that he was a leader, that he was all of these things, but he wasn't God. So they want to deny his deity. They want to deny him as creator. The Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, but they want to deny that. And Peter gives us the design as to why they do what they do. Now look at verse number 2. And many will follow their sensuality. You know why they do it? They deny the truth because they want to satisfy their own lust with religion's approval. Isn't it amazing? At least it is to me. Whenever I hear people justifying their sinful lifestyle by trying to convince me through the Bible that it is acceptable. That's what Peter is talking about. They want to continue their lustful life while they have biblical approval. In verse number 3, he continues, and in their greed they will exploit you. Barclay said, the desire to possess that which a man has no right to de desire. So they disguise their falsehood as being truth. That's a false prophet. He disguises or she disguises falsehood as being truth. Now, friend, that is the reason why it is so important that you always measure what you're hearing by Scripture. And I don't care who it comes from. You need to measure what I say by Scripture. What does the Bible say? Because the false prophet comes in and presents his message as being truth. And so we have to measure it by Scripture because the effect of that is that the grace of God is perverted into an excuse for sin. Whenever, whenever we twist the Scripture, whenever we pervert the Scripture, we always do so so that I can sin and receive approval. So he gives us the characteristics of the false prophets. Now then, there's the judgment of the false prophets. Down in verse number 3b, he says, Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter gives three examples of judgment to say that the false prophets are going to be judged. 
He says, first of all, there are the fallen angels in verse number 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, what's he talking about here? The angels who sinned. Let me go back with you to Satan's sin. Now, you know that Satan, before he was Satan, was Lucifer. He was an angel of God. And there came a time when Lucifer sinned or rebelled against God. And so the Bible says in Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 15, and generally it's believed that this is a reference to Satan or to Lucifer's fall. But you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to shield to the recesses of the pit. Now, Satan came to the place where he rebelled against God and said, I am going to take the position that belongs only to God. Apparently, a third of the angels joined him in his rebellion. And they became fallen angels or demons. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse number 4, And his tail swept away, and that is generally believed to be a reference to Satan there, the serpent. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, believed to be the angels, and threw them to the earth. Now, it is believed then by many Bible scholars that Lucifer rebelled against God, that a third of the angels joined him in his rebellion. They were cast out of heaven, became demons, but they are going to be judged. Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. The word hell there is the word Tartarus. And in Greek mythology, it referred to the lowest hell referred to the lowest point in hell, which would be in keeping with what he says there at the pits of darkness. He says they are going to be judged. You need to understand this. The angels who sinned, they are going to be judged. They are going to be put in the lowest hell, the pits of darkness. Second is the ancient world in verse number 5. Did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, of course, this is a reference to the judgment of the ancient world by God. He sent the flood. Uh, mankind at that time had given himself over to sin. The Bible says in Genesis 6, 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was the condition at that time. Man had given himself over to sin. His thoughts were all about sin. He continually thought about his sin. The Bible says that the Lord was grieved. Genesis 6, 6, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And then the Bible says that God judged. Genesis 6, 7, And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. And so that's when he sent the flood. So as he's talking about judgment here, he is talking about the fallen angels. He's talking about the ancient world. And then he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah in verse number 6. 
And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. Now, you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were given over to homosexuality, and the Bible says that they were judged. Now, the point that he is making is that just as the fallen angels were judged, just as the ancient world was judged, just as Sodom and Gomorrah was judged, so too... These false prophets are going to be judged. That's the point that he's making, that they are going to be judged. Then there's the deliverance of the righteous in verse number 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, God judges the evil, but he delivers the righteous. And Peter goes back and sort of reiterates what he said as he describes again the evil persons of that time. They are people who indulge the flesh in verse number 10. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring self-will, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. He says they indulge the flesh. Now, this is a person who is dominated by fleshly desires. Now, folks, we are both spiritual and physical. You know, there are some people who only see the physical. We are both a physical being and a spiritual being. Now, he is referring here to people who are dominated by the physical, and many are. They are dominated by the physical temptations of life. He says they are daring. In verse number 10, they are daring. Daring can, can be a reference to courage, that someone did something courageous, they were daring. It can also have a negative uh, understanding to it, and it does here because he is speaking about people who dares to rebel against Almighty God. That, that's daring. He says they are self-willed. In other words, their motivation is to please themselves. Doesn't matter what the Bible says, doesn't matter what God says, they live to please themselves. They are fleshly, they are daring, rebelling against God, self-willed. Desiring to please themselves. Barclay wrote, If a man is self-willed, no logic nor common sense, nor appeal, nor sense of decency will keep him from doing what he wants to do. Isn't that interesting? If a man is ruled by his self-will, no one can keep him from doing what he wants to do. Trench wrote, Thus, of obstinately maintaining his own opinion or asserting his own rights, he is reckless of the rights and opinions and interests of other. And there in verse number 10, he says, they do not tremble. In other words, these people are not fearful of facing God. They preach a false doctrine. They live an ungodly life. And they are not fearful of angelic majesties. God judges the evil, but he says, but he delivers the righteous. And that's how we're going to end today. He delivers the righteous. Noah, verse number 5, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, Noah was faithful to the Lord. He built the ark when it had not rained. So he was faithful to the message of the Lord. God told him to build an ark. Had not rained at that time, he built the ark. He was a preacher. He warned the people for 120 years before the flood actually came because he wanted people to be saved. And so he was a preacher, and God delivered him. The next example is Lot in verse number 7. If he rescued righteous Lot, 
oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Now, Lot, as you know, was in Sodom and Gomorrah. He lived in an ungodly environment. I don't know about you, but I've asked the question concerning Lot. Why did he stay there? I mean, if Sodom and Gomorrah were was such a bad place to be, why did he stay there? Newman said, our great security against sin lies in being shocked at it. Let me say that to you again, because I think that's profound. Our great security against sin lies in being shocked at it. The reason we feel comfortable around sin is that we are no longer shocked by it. There are some things you can reflect back a few years ago in your life that when something first happened, when you first heard of something, that you were shocked by it. But no more. We just get used to it. And I think that's what happened to Lot. He lived in this ungodly environment, but he was no longer shocked by what he saw. And when we are no longer shocked, we begin to accept things we know are wrong. Now, the Bible says that even in this ungodly environment, Lot remained true to God. And uh, the Lord delivered him. He was willing to leave when God told him to. Now, in Genesis 19, uh, chapter 16, it indicates that Lot was hesitant when the angel came and said to Lot, get your family, get out of here. I'm going to bring judgment on this place. You need to get out of here. He hesitated. But the angel took him by the hand and led him out, and he went. Folks, sometimes it's hard to leave that that is familiar to us. But there are times when it's absolutely required. There are some of you who might be in a position right now, maybe it's in a relationship. But you are in a position right now that is devastating to your life, and especially if you're a believer. And it's familiar to you and you are comfortable with it. But it could be that God is saying to you today, you need to get out of that. You need to get out of that. Understanding the hesitancy. Because we're comfortable with that, that is familiar. But oftentimes it is absolutely essential that we do as Lot. Though he hesitated, he nevertheless left and was delivered by God. Let me conclude. In this passage of Scripture, Peter is talking about false prophets, false doctrines, and so forth. And he is saying that judgment is assured. That God judged the fallen angels. He judged the ancient world. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah, and he will also judge the false prophets, and he will also judge us. The second thing is, is that deliverance is available, because he said that he delivered Noah. It says that he delivered Lot, and my friend, he will deliver you, because that's what our God does. Our God is a God who delivers those who ask him for deliverance. Now, let me ask you today, do you need to be delivered? Are you in a position, in an environment, in a situation, in a spiritual condition, and you need God's deliverance? God's love is totally available to you, and he will deliver, just as he did Lot, just as he did Noah, if you trust him. To deliver you. 
Our Father and God, we come to a time of invitation, and I pray, Lord, for those who need to be delivered today. Lord, you know the, you know every one of us. You know what our situation is. You know what our needs are. You know what our spiritual condition is. And Lord, I just pray that the Holy Spirit of God will search us and reveal to us what you see and that today we might be honest with you and responsive to you. Just as Lot was responsive when the angels took him by the hand and led him out, I pray that we'll be responsive as the Holy Spirit takes us by the heart and leads us to Jesus. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir is going to sing a hymn of invitation, an opportunity for you to say yes to the Lord. If the Spirit of God is tugging at your heart today, would you come? Make your commitment to Him. Trust Him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors open to you. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please. As we stand together, the choir sings, you come. I'll greet you as you do.